By this workshop, we state a call for action. There is a need to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon society. The focus of this workshop will be on innovation, as well as on related challenges in policies and institutions. Listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, where we make sustainability research meaningful for the everyday person. This podcast is produced by the IIIE at Lund University. This episode is hosted by Stephen Curtis and Sophie Sundin. Welcome to the first episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Sophie. How exciting for us to, to start our podcast today. Yes, I am very excited. And I know we have an exciting topic to start off with. Right. To begin, we wanted to talk about science and the role of science in order to provide us the perspective for our future episodes where we discuss the impacts that sustainability research can have in advancing sustainable solutions. So to begin, Sophie and I thought that we could share our experiences in how we consider science uh, through teaching, through our coursework that we take as PhD students, as well as through our research. In particular, we want to discuss the role and relevance of science in society. One such way that we see science as contributing to society is by providing support to policymakers. Yeah, and this could be done, for example, through scientific workshops where scientists come together to discuss and present policy recommendations to address current sustainability challenges. One of these scientific workshops was held in Lund in May earlier this year, 2018. It was called Transition to Low Carbon Society, and it brought together both scientists and societal actors. It was held in conjunction with the Clean Energy Ministerial Meeting and the Mission Innovation Meetings, uh, also held in uh, May in Malmö and Copenhagen. To begin this episode, you heard from Lena Ney, the director of our institute, during her opening remarks to the scientific workshop. We will hear more from Lena and other participants from the workshop later in this episode. But before we do... What is science? That's the question that Sophie and I posed to a group of master's students earlier this semester. We're teaching a course called Environmental Science in the Anthropocene, and we wanted to start the course with that very question. And uh, Sophie, you took the first lecture. How did you prepare yourself to discuss science in a, in a 45-minute lecture? Well, it certainly is challenging to condense the entire history of science into 45 minutes. But I approached it from the perspective of science as a process, not a linear endeavor of any kind, but rather something that is iterative and ongoing. Yeah, I like that you conceptualize science as a as a iterative process. I think this is one of the challenges that I have with how science is taught in in many uh, schools around the world. Considering the scientific method, I think this is something that we're all fairly familiar with. At least in my education, this was something that was drilled into me. Um, but it presents science as quite a linear process from identifying your research question to uh, developing a hypothesis to designing an experiment to conducting your experiment to analyzing your results and then reporting your results. Uh, and, and as contextualized in that way, it's quite a linear process. But when you say you consider science as a, as a cyclical or iterative process, what exactly do you mean? 
Well, when we talk to the students, we emphasize the need to move back and forth between the steps of the scientific method. For example, the research that we do here at the IIEE is an iterative process. We start with a research question, but revisit it after we have analyzed and discussed our results. Sometimes research not only leads to answers, but also leads to new questions, and the cycle starts over. The last part of the scientific method, the communication of results, is of particular importance to us at our institute. We want to be part of and contribute to sustainable solutions in society, and to do so, we engage in, for example, interdisciplinary discussions and workshops. Yeah, and as we know, science has uh, been around for quite some time, right? It got its start in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia in the early 3500s BCE. I wonder at that time how they went about communicating the results. Yeah, they probably didn't have scientific workshops as we know them today, but some of the results uh, are still around, so they managed to communicate for sure. I think one of the things that we see then throughout the history of science is that there has been this uh, process of communicating results. And of course, how one communicates the results is very much dependent on the, the branch of science that one is conducting research in. So for example, we conceptualize science uh, as three different branches, the first being the natural sciences. The natural sciences include the physical sciences and the life sciences. So for example, if we take the physical sciences, this includes physics, chemistry, environmental science and others. Whereas in contrast, the life science, uh, the life sciences, for example, are biology, zoology, botany. For me, I like to conceptualize these uh, as, as the living things and the physical things. Another branch of science is the social sciences. This includes economics, sociology, political science, and communication. And finally, the third branch of science is the formal sciences. This includes logic, mathematics, statistics, systems theory, etc. Now, if we think about the role of experimentation in relation to these three different branches of science, we see experimentation more often associated with the natural science and the social sciences, where formal sciences are much more interested in the study of logic um, uh, than they are in terms of, of studying empirics. But where does uh, interdisciplinary research come into the picture? Yeah, exactly. So these three branches of science are the foundational sciences that form the basis of interdisciplinary and applied sciences. So for example, applied sciences include medicine and engineering, whereas interdisciplinary sciences include the work that we're doing here at the Institute, such as sustainability sciences. Yeah, and at our institute, we have researchers from many different disciplines coming together under the same roof, uh, under the same research coordination areas, where we try to complement each other. Yeah, so for example, my background is meteorology, yours was... Environmental science. Right, and uh, I know that we're working with engineers and economists and social scientists and anthropologists. It, it makes for some really interesting discussions, uh, both in our research, but also over coffee. And in society. Yeah, good point. So you can imagine that uh, scientists that have different educational backgrounds have different ways of viewing the world. And maybe you can see this in your everyday life. So for example, when you're standing around the water cooler at work or having coffee with friends, you can see how different people's experiences, educational backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, or what have you, can impact how your uh, friends and colleagues view the world. Uh, Sophie, maybe you can help us contextualize this a little bit more. Yes, scientists can roughly be divided into two groups, objective and subjective, depending on how they view the world. I remember reading about a good metaphor for this. Think of two scientists doing research on the same object, a forest for example. 
The objective scientist would be found on a cliff, looking down on the forest. The forest would have defined boundaries, and the scientist would look at it from a distance, measuring and analyzing what can be seen. The subjectivist researcher, on the other hand, is instead looking at the forest from within, in rubber boots, collecting data from what he or she sees in the forest. The difference is thus that, while objective scientist sees the object from a distance, the subjective scientist sees it from within and from his or her point of view. I think that's a really useful metaphor for us to begin to see that different people can see the world in different ways. And in fact, there's an entire field of science dedicated to this called the philosophy of science. Sophie and I have to take a course in the philosophy of science as part of our PhD. Uh, and I think it was useful for me to understand how different people approach science differently. So for example, in Sophie's metaphor, the objectivist could be seen as what's called as a positivist. That means that they see the world as it is. Uh, the analogy that I like to use then is the positivist sees the world as a mirror, uh, that reality is reflected back at them as if it were a mirror. It's reliable, it's factual, and it's literal. In contrast, the subjectivist uh, could also be called a constructivist. In this way, they see that the world is constructed based on our collective experiences, education, and the like. Uh, so for example, a constructivist may see the world as a construction yard in which all the different concepts that are in society are constructed through language uh, and through our own experiences, meaning that different people see the world in different ways. It should also be emphasized that all of these different ways to approach research are important and brings valuable insights to the scientific and societal discussions. Yeah, I agree. But I think in those discussions, we just need to be aware of how scientific perspectives impact uh, the knowledge that's being discussed. So for example, I think first and foremost, scientists need to be aware of how our own experiences and perspectives impact our results. Secondly, I think that policymakers, business leaders, and others that use any type of scientific research need to understand the perspectives of scientists in order to determine the relevant application of their findings. Finally, I think that it is vital, now more than ever, to recognize that our individual views and perspectives impact how we see and interpret the world. For example, I think this is demonstrated through the growth of fake news in the recent years. President Trump has popularized the notion of fake news, recognizing that our own perspectives impact what we consider to be true. Increasingly, we read news and interact with people that reinforce our worldview. And I think this can be dangerous, especially when legitimate science, which is confirmed again and again through observation and experiment, is discredited and disregarded. Take, for example, climate research. We've seen this discussion shift to see climate change as something that one can believe. Somebody identifies as a climate believer or a climate denier. But this is one thing that I've never understood, is how one can believe in climate change. Climate change has been demonstrated by research time and again uh, through testing of hypothesis, uh, modeling, and, and scientific results uh, that demonstrate climate change is happening and that humans are the cause of climate change. So I've never really understood this notion of believing or denying climate change. It's a, it's a demonstrated phenomenon in society, in the, in the world. Yes. Take climate change, ocean plastics, and contaminated soil as examples. As our sustainability challenges mount, we need to recognize well-tested, peer-reviewed science and its importance in providing support to policymakers. This was the goal of a scientific workshop hosted in Lund. 
The scientific workshop gathered scientists from around the world to discuss and present policy solutions to transition to low-carbon society. And today we're joined by Lena Ney, the head of department at the IIIEE. And Lena, I understand that you were integral in planning and organizing the scientific workshop. Tell us a little bit more about the process that went into organizing an event such as this. It was really a good opportunity to to have an event like this, a workshop like this. Uh, we got to know uh, that the Clean Energy Ministerial Meeting and the Mission Innovation Meeting were going to be held in Malmö in, in May. So already in September, October last year, uh, we started to plan. So how can we contribute to this event? Uh, we really would like to gather many researchers to, to tell the ministers what we think about the transition to a low carbon society. So yeah. what did that day look like, the, the scientific workshop? Well, it was a very good experience. I think we had researchers and experts uh, from all over the world, from China, India, Japan, Brazil, different countries in Europe. Yeah, it, it was a great event, really. Uh, and uh, we had a few presentations, uh, keynote presentations, uh, where researchers were to, and experts, to really go into the topic or different parts of, of the transition process towards a low-carbon uh, low society. Great. So that concludes our interview with Lena Ney, the director of our institute. Uh, but what I want to just reiterate is that it was a really great day. In particular, I was invited to the scientific workshop, and I have to say it was intense. There was a lot of discussions, a lot of presentations, and a lot of ideas really to move uh, the discourse forward, in particular on a political level uh, to, to continue our transition to a low-carbon society. Yeah, and we thought that we could share some highlights from the day with you. First, you will hear from Matthew J. Hoffman, professor at the University of Toronto and co-director of Environmental Governance Lab. And secondly, from Oras Tynkkinen, senior advisor at the Finnish Innovation Fund, Citra. Now, the recommendations that came out of our deliberations preceding this workshop are focused on facilitating the emergence of experiments, allowing expectations and standards, supporting pre-commercial procurement, providing incentives. These are all, our recommendations are often about making it easier to experiment, especially around new technological, or new technologies and market development, and making and helping governments get better at experimenting. Most speakers know lots more about technology and technological innovations than I do. I'm a lowly political scientist, so I'm going to leave that to them. But one thing that's interesting in these recommendations is that they presuppose that experiments matter, that experiments can help bring about this shift to decarbonization pathways. This is great, and I agree as someone who has been studying climate governance experiments. But I want to add to this discussion by talking about the role of experimentation in moving towards decarbonization, how they can matter. To my mind, if we can convince decision makers that experiments matter and show them how, the recommendations about experimenting more and even more boldly will be all the more compelling. If we had 100 years, we could just sit back and enjoy the developments happen on their own and there would be no problem. We don't have 100 years. We need to have the transition happen much faster than it is happening currently. It, we, we are seeing very positive signs, the, the price of solar panels being one uh, very good example, but it's not happening fast enough. And therefore, the, uh, the role of policymaking is to accelerate this change. 
And uh, you can do it uh, in various different ways. You can do it by removing the obstacles from the introduction of these sustainable solutions, uh, or you can uh, basically uh, penalize the unsustainable solutions. There are a lot of well-meaning people who talk about the climate crisis, myself being included. They uh, talk about the urgency of the challenge, they talk about the urgency of the action we need to take place, and then they continue business as usual. And that's not a very credible message to send. If people listen to you talking about the climate crisis and then the next day they see you continuing your business as usual things, activities, you're not sending a very credible message because you're not acting like you actually believe what you're saying. And this needs to change as well. If we are really serious about the climate crisis and the, uh, the other challenges we have ahead of us, if we really do believe that it is indeed an existential challenge for humanity, as I very strongly believe, then we need to start acting like we actually believe it. There was a sense of urgency at the workshop. I really felt it, especially during the question and answer sessions or the panel discussions that were held that day. And I think there's a desire among scientists to leverage scientific knowledge more in the policymaking arena. As mentioned, the output of the scientific workshop was a set of recommendations. These recommendations were given to the Swedish energy minister to bring forward at Mission Innovation and the Clean Energy Ministerial meetings. However, the outcome of these recommendations and others by the academic community are often unknown. Politicians have many actors vying for their attention, and personally, I hope that we, as academics, can do more to advocate for science in supporting policymaking. And at our institute, we have the research theme International and National Policy Intervention. Researchers, such as myself, working in this theme, seek to bridge the gap between science and policy. We do so by engaging in developing methodologies and analytical approaches that can provide new insights and support to transition to low-carbon economy. Uh, so, Sophie, we're, we're wrapping up our first episode here of the podcast. What do you want listeners to take away from this episode? I want them to understand that scientists have different perspectives on how they view the world, and this impacts the application of their results. Yeah, so for me, I want to convey that I think that we should appreciate and respect each other's different viewpoints, uh, recognizing that these are often a result of our individual experiences, uh, including our, our education, our culture, our socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. Um, furthermore, there's a place for the objectivist or the subjectivist, the positivist or the constructivist, and that around the cooler or in research, We'll be confronted with different viewpoints, but through discussion, we can seek to accept and understand these different perspectives. Uh, furthermore, I think it's important that we trust science, but we be critical of, of the message. Yeah, and also we should remember that science is valid as a decision supporting policymaking. Policies and regulations will be necessary if we are to address our current sustainability challenges. Good, so this has been our first episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Thanks for listening. We want to thank Lena, Mats, Marianne, and Katya, who organized the scientific workshop and invited us to participate. So stay tuned for the next episode coming to you in October. Bye! Bye! Bye-bye!